1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get
0: started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Our technologies, markets, and cultural institutions, once forces for human connection and expression, now isolate and repress us. It's time to remake society together, not as individual players, but as the team we actually are, Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author of John D. and the Empire of Angels, Enochian magic and the occult roots of the modern world, Jason Lou.
1: Now that we're going into the world of AI, well, we
0: need to be very, very
1: careful about what assumptions we bring into that, because we're going to be living in a world of
0: gods and monsters very shortly, real ones, technologically real ones. Jason will be helping us see how the intentions we bring into the world of artificial intelligence could set something in motion from which it's hard to return. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. We'll be talking about magic and alchemy today with our guest Jason Louvre. And I was researching his work and I was surprised to see he also offers a course in the blockchain alongside all of his magical and alchemical stuff. And it's not really that odd. I've always thought about the blockchain as a form of alchemy itself. And I guess it's fitting because we're just recovering from blockchain week here in New York where hundreds of people have gathered to talk about blockchains and compare their token offerings and look at the various applications of blockchain to everything from supply chain management to communal management. And I had to do a couple of talks at some of these events, and I'm, I guess at this point, something of a blockchain uh, skeptic and for a number of reasons. I mean, I think it's a great technology. I've always liked pretty good privacy as a way of authenticating an email, and I can understand now using that to authenticate transactions and show the banks and all the middlemen that we don't really need them in order to establish identity and have a trusted transaction but what i keep looking at and i guess this is as a media or technology theorist at you know what is the blockchain retrieving. You know, whenever uh, Marshall McLuhan, a great media theorist, was looking and evaluating a medium or a technology, he always looked at what is it retrieving? What does the automobile retrieve? It retrieves the chariot. You know, what is, what is a different, what's being brought, what's culturally coming back? What values is it going to espouse? And as I look at the blockchain and the history of currency and money and transaction, I'm not so sure that blockchain retrieves the very best mechanisms for value exchange. We've talked a lot on this show about how originally, you know, the, the first real currency was gold and how it was a real problem for people because if you had any gold, you hoarded it, you stored it, you weren't going to trade it. Peasants didn't get any gold. Gold was really a currency only for long-distance trade between monarchs and really wealthy merchants. And it wasn't until market money was invented really by the peasants, or first used by the peasants and imported really from uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, wasn't until market monies came about, these sort of low-cost poker chips really, that were issued in the morning and that expired at night, that people got to use money, that market monies were really just ways of priming the pump at the market for exchange. And that's what got people so wealthy. That's what led to the middle class. And then they were made illegal by the monarchs because the monarchs couldn't control commerce if everybody was using all of these low-cost local currencies. And instead, they made people borrow money at interest from the central treasury. And this is what allowed really the rich to stay rich simply by being rich. And everyone else in the real economy, really, just to serve this interest-bearing, growth-based economy. So we've talked a lot about that. But what does the blockchain retrieve? Does it retrieve the low-cost, valueless market monies of the late Middle Ages that let people be rich? No. It retrieves gold. The blockchain is a way of keeping a currency scarce. It's uh, not a way of re-establishing the trust that people learn to have of one another in a in a credit based local market. It's a way of substituting for trust in a new way. So instead of using a big bank to substitute for the fact that you and I don't trust each other, now we've got all of this technology to substitute for trust. So it doesn't engender trust. It doesn't engender community. It substitutes for it. It's really just, you know, a ledger with benefits. The idea is that you go onto a blockchain and you're going to use all this new way of exchanging and tracking value but the secret sauce is that you're also getting these tokens which may just be super valuable someday now there's other ways to use blockchain and i appreciate them so you could use blockchain say to prove that a coffee bean came from uh you know free trade. There were no slaves involved. So we can trace this little coffee bean all the way back to where it came from. And that might be good for a business to know as a way of tracking things. But is that really the way that, say, uh, a brand or a a coffee merchant is going to be selling its coffee? Are you going to go into a coffee shop? And is the way that the coffee seller, the barista, whoever's there, are, are they going to prove the slave free quality of their coffee by showing you the blockchain you know dis- is that is that going to be the way a great coffee brand uh, shows its its competitive advantage over the other coffee brands is that the way that a brand should be establishing its trust by by showing its blockchain number uh, I, don't, I don't really know you know the the real shift here should be that we could use technologies to move money from really a noun to a verb, that we can make money less something that you save and store as a way of proving your value, but really more of a way to promote transactions and movement between people. The object of the game should be to make money as worthless as possible so that it's biased towards flow and spending and exchange, not saving and hoarding and shielding and protection. The social good people they really see the blockchain as a way of making visible all the value that people are creating for one another, but not getting rewarded for. Jaron Lanier has written beautifully on the idea that instead of having all our value and data extracted by social media platforms, that we should find a way to, to record and value all of those microtransactions all of that micro extraction and the blockchain to the extent that it could be used to label every single little transaction every way we've created value you know in some ways that's the the libertarians wet dream that Everything is quantifiable in terms of transaction. That waking up in the morning, well, if I get out on the left side of the bed versus the right, how could that data be used by bed manufacturers or sleep specialists? And then how can I be rewarded for that? So if everything I do is somehow tracked and registered as valuable data, then our entire reality can become transactionalized. I don't see that as a positive step, particularly because we're going to be constantly looking, well, how is this action a transaction? How is this a transaction? And the things that I do that aren't recognized as transactional still don't end up on the ledger. We're trying to move all of human reality to that ledger. And that's not the direction I think we should be going. I don't think that brings us further toward human trust. It doesn't recognize all that liminal stuff, all the weird stuff. When I look at the way culture is moving, I don't see young people moving towards an increasingly transactional reality. I see them buying LPs instead of digital files, not just out of nostalgia, but out of recognition that there's something else. It's not measurable. It's not mathematical. It doesn't fit on the ledger. I think the object of the game is to take as much human activity as we can off the ledger and back into that soft squishy place where human beings really live. You're on Team Human. Our guest today, the author of John D and the Empire of Angels, Jason Lou. Lots of good changes happening with Team Human. We're about to start broadcasting on some terrific community radio stations, giving Team Human more of the terrestrial footprint I believe it deserves. We're also booking our Team Human live events. We'll be in New York at the Alchemist's Kitchen on Thursday, June 22nd with the founder of Soma Space, Mark Filippi. And then in London on July 9th with biologist Rupert Sheldrake and cyberpunk queen Pat Cadigan. More on all of this at teamhuman.fm very shortly. I don't know anyone who has thought more about the way our stories and technologies conjure new realities than Jason Lueb. He's the author of a number of books about the relationship of magic to culture and power, including most recently, John Dee and the Empire of Angels. So... Anyway, I, I think you and I first met through Richard Metzger and Disinformation, wasn't it?
1: We did. That's right.
0: Um, Were you at DisinfoCon?
1: I was not at DisinfoCon, but I started working for Disinfo shortly thereafter, where I was... or Actually, I think I was interning for Disinfo remotely when the con happened, uh, but I had kind of been in this, uh, you know, which is one of the reasons why it's so cool to be on the show. You know, I grew up as a teenager reading your books and reading, you know, The Invisibles and reading Disinfo and all of this stuff uh, and, and just, uh, thinking that was, that was, that's what I wanted to do with my life, you know? And then, and so I, I kind of ended up working for Disinfo right out of college. So I was at, yeah, I became the books editor for Disinfo in 2003, I think. And then, mm. uh, And that yeah. wasn't
0: edit, was that editing books or was that writing about books? Uh,
1: it was both. it was, it was doing all the editing on the print books they were putting out, the copy editing, and then running their...
0: Right, like you are being lied to and the, the book of lies and those kind of books. Right,
1: right. And so it was from that kind of, you know, nexus that I was in that I ended up, you know, meeting Genesis and kind of just being thrown headfirst into the deep end of, of the of the counterculture.
0: Well, it was an interesting moment, too. I mean, I remember if people, if people want to see... What we were all like back then. I mean, you can find a lot of the stuff on YouTube. The, the DisinfoCon was probably in like '98 or '99, and it was this gathering of you know people like me, Richard Metzger, Robert Anton Wilson, Joe Coleman. Uh, I think uh, maybe Penny Arcade might have been there, and so it was. It was this sort of magical early cyber moment where it felt like. Kind of anything was possible, and the counterculture had sort of won the war of a sort, and now we had these tools at our disposal to remake reality uh, you know to our to our own design, uh, which maybe we still do and I remember grant Morrison the the comic book writer, he got up there and you know he was stoned or drinking you know he like chugged like two or three pints and then started talking about um, chaos magic. In a way, as if to say, "Look, this is what corporations do. This is a sigil. here's how you make a sigil. You just take a word and you take out the you take out the vowels and smush it together into this symbol, and then you can you know have an orgasm or burn it or get stoned, and then it will happen. it'll just happen um so it seemed as if he was espousing a path to magic that a lot of young people liked, and you talked about in your book, uh, generation mm-hmm. Hex." This sort of, I guess, this is what what chaos magic was, right? It's like magic with no rules, or you just just do it, magic, sort of Nike magic or something,
1: right? Uh, and that that's kind of like the opening sales pitch of it, you know. And uh, but you know, from from my perspective, so I was one of those kids, right? I was one of the the kids reading disinfo and reading consuming all this material and going for it a hundred percent to the point that I've really made it my life's path. I mean, it's been, what, almost 20 years later now. And I've spent that 20 years um, immersing myself in magic and the occult and, and, but not just in the chaos magic sense, in the sense of, you know, I've really spent a lot of time you know, kind of embedded, as it were, in lots of shamanic world cultures. So uh, and the, the, the meditation traditions in Hinduism and Buddhism, Sufism, masonry, I was initiated as a shaman in Nepal, like uh, all of this stuff. And I've spent, you know, 20 years kind of on script as it were, <laughs> you know, I never left the disinfo <laughs> moment. Um, but one of the reasons why, I mean, I mean, you mentioned that utopian feeling. And one of the, you know, I remember so clearly being you know 20 21 years old and just feeling like this was it this was the future and then you know all of a sudden we got 9-11 and so i've also really spent the last 20 years you know trying to figure out what happened and i'm sure you remember the part uh and, and this is why i wrote this book you know john d and the empire of angels so i'm sure you remember the the scene in that scene in the original Star Trek where sometimes things would go wrong on the ship and Scotty and Kirk would have to climb into the engineering shafts to uh, figure out what had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what I've been trying to do for Western civilization. For the, the, It's like, what went wrong in the source code? Why did we, you know, we, we were just at the crest of this wave where to me, at least, it felt like it was going to be Burning Man everywhere and we were going to get the Monda 2000 Utopian Society and instead we went, back to this kind of crusader script with, you know, you know, you know, this, you know, the, the, the Bush, the, uh, the second Iraq war. And now we've ended up with Trump and Bannon and all like, you know, waves of horror. Why did this happen? And, and so I've been trying to, from a magical standpoint, and I really, I really define magic, I think in probably the same way you do, which is, you know, magic is, just the stories about what reality are and the fact that those stories can become real once we believe them in the sense that people start acting as if they're real. Um, what is the meaning that humanity assigns to is, to its experience. Um, and so, you know, why did, why did we go from what in my mind was the perfect script for the forward forward continuation of culture, which was Mono 2000 Siberia, all of this to You know why did we suddenly end up back in the in the Middle Ages? You know, back in
0: the Crusades. Well, and why did we? I mean, on a certain level, uh, ending up back in the Middle Ages is is the necessary and appropriate retrieval of you know the the systems, the ideas that we left behind. the The Renaissance itself was was largely a repression of, well, certainly of magic. And of women, and of herbs, and of local currencies, and city states. As we move towards this real abstract nationalism that we're still contending with, with today. You in know? a sense,
1: yeah. But also the Renaissance. You know, as I've uncovered in this book, the Renaissance was really the time that the magical tradition was created. You know, the Western esoteric tradition, and it was created in the Medici city states. Um, by uh, essentially, you know, intellectuals and monks who had just gotten access to the works of Plato and Aristotle for the first time. And were trying to synthesize that back into Western culture. And so they incorporated all the stuff that you're talking about, folk magic and all of that, into this idea of that there could be an operative magical system that could somehow be turned into a science. And I really relate it to what's happening now with Silicon Valley because the Medici city-states at this time were, you know, this incredibly wealthy uh, part of the world that was just far, you know, just, just far uh, above and beyond everyone else in terms of wealth and was kind of this elite. And we're looking for this Faustian technology that would take them even further, which at that time was magic. And now, of course, it's Silicon Valley with, you know, artificial intelligence or perhaps things like blockchain or machine learning and, and automation and other things like that. Uh, so it's a very interesting parallel but what i really discovered also in researching this is that magic never ended it just was kind of kept behind closed doors for you know elites in society if you will not not in a conspiratorial way but in a sense that it was really an elite pursuit but a pursuit that was responsible for many things like uh, the birth of science you might argue came out of this intellectual stream the creation of america even but at the same time, it's been wrapped up with this idea of the apocalypse and the idea of causing the apocalypse to save the world. And that right there is, I think the core piece of bad code in Western civilization that we're still left with today and is fueling a lot of our assumptions that you know we may be unfortunately taking with us into the future as we uh, with with new technologies like the ones I've mentioned.
0: right. so there's there's these. Magical traditions, and some of them are, you know, can't even call traditions. They're, you know, ancient, ancient stuff. There's this magic stuff, and then there's this, this kind of nationalism and empire and Judeo-Christian thing. And so, you wrote this book about John Dee, who's a an Elizabethan magician advisor to Queen Elizabeth, and. He's like super smart. He's clearly super smart, and he's done all this research into the kinds of things that you've researched, from you know, Sufism and and uh, meditation and and uh, Middle Eastern traditions and shamanic traditions, and he's seeing it all as as different ways of connecting to this enochian uh, universe, right?
1: Uh, yes. And John Dee was really, he was kind of like the Stephen Hawking of his day. I mean, he was this incredibly lauded scientist. He spent the whole first 50 years of his life kind of as he was considered the smartest guy in England. He had five times the books of Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, he, uh, was a government agent. He was actually, uh, called 007 in the British Secret Services and then got 007. So he was instrumental in in starting MI5, what became MI5
0: and MI6 and was really instrumental. So they had MI5 and MI6 way back, I mean, the, the inklings of it. This is sort of Secret Service back in Queen Elizabeth time.
1: Right. It was started by John Dee and then uh, Sir Francis Walsingham under uh, Elizabeth I's administration. In a lot of ways, the Elizabethan period gives us the modern world in as much as it gives us, yes, that those intelligence agencies. It gives us you know, Shakespeare, who kind of defines what a human being is. And then it also, during this time, John Dee... Creates the phrase British Empire. He's the one who came up with that meme, and that meme, he said, was given to him by an angel in an occult ritual, who told him that there should be a British Empire that spans the entire world, um, in order to spread the ideals of uh, what you might consider, you know, the the Protestantism and humanism around the world, as opposed to the top-down control of the church.
0: Right. So John Dee though wants to replace the top-down control of the church, which I guess is either the Catholic Church at that time but replace it with the top-down control of these, like, angel characters. Right. This
1: is just absolutely crazy, right? Like, this is one of those moments where when you really dig into history, you start to realize that the history is more bizarre than the strangest, like, Alex Jones conspiracy theories, right? Particularly because it's uh-huh. actually verifiable. And that is that, you know, John Dee spent 10 years... So, again, if you if you imagine Dee as Stephen Hawking, you know, what? by the time that he was 50... D then said, "You know what? I'm going to dedicate the next ten years of my life to doing occult rituals to contact angels." And the example that I give is if it would be as if Stephen Hawking had said, "Okay, you know, I'm I've really made it as a scientist. Now I'm going to spend ten years smoking DMT trying to talk to aliens." You know, it's that right. it's, it's that same kind of uh, uh, left turn. But during these sessions, which he, you know, you know, allegedly. You know, like there's lots of ways to interpret it, whether it was actually happening or it was just in his head or he was being conned. Uh, He was working with a a psychic named Edward Kelly, and they spent 10 years, you know, writing over a thousand pages of records of talking to these, what they said were angels. One of the ideas that emerged from this was that not only should there be a British empire, but that there should be a worldwide empire of angels, which is, you know, one new world order, one unifying religion unifying protestantism catholicism judaism islam and even paganism um, and that it should be controlled terrestrially by elizabeth so it should be a spiritual and terrestrial totalizing empire
0: right so this is this is way bigger than like seth speaks and telling <laughs> you to eat raw almonds to prevent you know cancer this, this yeah. is, <laughs> right the, so the the angels i mean because you know what i mean the kind of channeling we get today is doesn't have this kind of content so the the He's doing all these rituals and things and channeling and vision quests and communicating with these entities, whether they're the the you know, the the machine elves of McKenna or the angels of the Bible, whatever they are, and they're saying, Okay, it's angel time, and the way we're gonna bring about angel time and exercise this true, great occult you know, realization and ultimately bring on utopia is we're going to follow the Christian model and bring on an apocalypse. And to do that, we need to have this giant empire to create a kind of a one world, one world government to administrate
1: this up. Right. Right. And they wanted, uh, so as part of the sessions, they gave D the schematics to build what's called the Holy table of practice, which I, is kind of like the world's most complicated Ouija board yeah. which is a, a like a setup that you would use to talk to the angels so they wanted one of these in basically every household like a TV so that everyone would be able to uh, make their own direct contact with spiritual entities basically because they were very frustrated with the the state of you know mortal religion if you would call it that and and the protestant reformation If you can imagine a world like that, I mean, I know Brian Geisen wanted something similar, where he wanted a dream machine in every in every house instead of a TV, right? But you you can you can only you know we can only fathom what this would be like—a world in which people were uh, you know immersed in in occult rituals to contact angels instead of watching cops on TV. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a crazy idea, and of course, well, we could say, well, that clearly didn't happen. Although I don't know if you kind of if you kind of look sideways. And look at you know, i don't know global capitalism monoculture globalization it, which really kind of is an extension of protestantism in a strange way with the protestant work ethic and the idea of you know working yourself to the death to build the spiritual utopia that really was the foundational kind of ideological dna of america in a way it kind of did happen in a strange way and so so this is what I mean in the sense of crawling into the into the engineering tunnels. It's just like what? Wh- why did the world become okay? Well, first of all, why did you know the, the the brutal legacy of the British Empire and then the American Empire that came out of it, and the deforestation and the degradation of the natural world, and the enslavement of people, and the the paving over of indigenous religions? Well, when you suddenly understand that these ideas came out of an occult ritual, well, that Makes it's kind of a stra gives you a strange way to look at things, and a, and a sideways way, way to look at things.
0: I know, and it's um, I guess what it comes down to for me is then. So you then you spend twenty years looking through some of the same, you know, byways and highways of people like John D, and it, it makes me wonder: do, is there is there a there there? You know, sometimes when I read these guys or read Crowley or somebody, it seems like what they're saying is, well, look, we can use this, all this magic stuff as sort of the story through which we convince people to sign on to this, you know, to obey our empire because we got, it's the ultimate black box. You know, we've been there, we've talked to the angels, it's there, this is real power. You know, just obey you know right. and is it is it do you think that there's a there there that there are these entities that were speaking with d and trying to uh, uh, assist them or to get d to 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 enlist d and queen elizabeth in this you know angel technology stuff or do, do you think that there was some cynicism and manipulation involved
1: i think it could have been both um i i have to come to the conclusion that I don't think that I I don't, I think that D was a hundred percent sincere. Now he could have been manipulated by Kelly, his psychic, and there could have been other things going on. But I think the more broad, the more broad answer uh, to your question, you know, after 20 years, I think that, well, I'm, I'm with, you know, Crowley said something at one point that's, you know, if you do certain things, certain things will happen. Like, you know, if you follow certain ritual procedures, you will have very strange experiences. You know, now whether those are objectively real, that's a whole other question. So I think that when we get into the domain of magic, what we're really talking about is not anything that's objectively true. We're talking about the human process of subjectivity and how we generate subjectively meaningful experiences or how we overlay subjective meaning onto. Uh, the objective material truths of the world Uh, but uh, and a a more specific way to say that is you know i love the example of of a stage magician pulling a rabbit out of a hat right whereas you know a stage magician is in the business of producing illusions to impress people Uh, a real magician or at least a magician who's interested in exploring consciousness in a sincere way uh, is very much about removing. Uh, illusions. And what I mean by that is, if you do a lot of these occult rituals, so for instance, uh, yoga, long meditation, um, ritual, or, you know, uh, entheogens, things like this in a ritual context, uh, you'll have crazy experiences, you'll have experiences that are no different than perhaps what were reported by biblical prophets or shamans or yogis from the records that we read, and you'll have the same experiences. But at the same time, you'll then understand why you had those experiences, you'll understand, well, I just did a certain set of processes through yogic breathing or ritual that's clearly triggered something in my nervous system that I could see that somebody could easily interpret as something mystical happening. And so in a way, when we do magic, we almost disprove or not as much disprove them as you see how the rabbit's pulled out of the hat. You see how the sausage is made. You see that if you do certain yogic practices or rituals, you will have sacred experiences. And I think that a, a cynical person would look at that and say, aha, that proves it, you know, oh, this is all nonsense. This is just some type of nervous system event. It's just something firing in your brain. I've disproven all of religion. But I think that a more creative thinker or a magical thinker might look at that and say, well, aha, now I know how to pull the rabbit out of the hat. You know, that was kind of fun. Let's let's, let's do that again. You know, can we do that on demand? Can we get people who are totally kind of cynical and disempowered uh, and feel uh, adrift in the world to do things like this and generate? A sense of meaning and connectedness in in their lives. You know, what would that be like?
0: Right. I mean, we see the beginnings of it. I mean, even in in what you might consider unenlightened places, you know, they're doing, you know, ecstatic rituals and, you know, dancing with snakes. And I mean, they're having uh, experiences, you know, even if they're, you know, they're not like us, they're not, you know, counterculture advocates. They're still people who are touching you know, touching these places. Right. But I
1: think that it's part of the human experience. I think that magic is really, um, you know, magic is a word for the way that humans generate meaning out of their experience. I think it's something that is a spun, you know, after, you know, again, 20 years of looking at this stuff, I don't think it's that complicated or special. I think that it's a, uh, and I don't think that it's something that you have to jump through a lot of hoops to do. I think that it's, magic is kind of a an emergent property, if you will, of the human meaning-making faculty And it seems of, you know, nature and the universe itself where, where, you know, meaningful patterns and meaningful experiences seem to just emerge of their own accord uh, when you're looking for them. Uh, But that said, it's, you know, one thing that's really come home to me. Where I started with the assumption that magic was a kind of a special activity that it was uh, you know that it was a counterculture thing that it was you know res- it was a punk rock thing. The, the conclusion that I really have to come to is that's not the case that it really is core to humans in all cultures at all times. you know I mean you can look at uh, what Christians and you know fundamentalist Christians, some of the things they do are very magical. Uh, any anybody ascribed to any religion, Uh, there will be some magical parts of it. Uh, Anybody who's just engaged in trying to uh, impose their will on the world, I mean, you could look at, as I do, you could look at uh, computer code or uh, business structure or marketing as all magical activities because they are methodologies for manipulating reality.
0: Well, language itself. I mean, you know, for people who didn't Know what speech was to watch a, you know, a neighboring tribe using speech to organize themselves and give commands, uh, you know, is was as magical to them as you know walkie-talkies would be to a non-technological civilization.
1: Absolutely, and this is actually core to uh, John Dee's research, where the real the core of the Renaissance magical tradition, with the Holy Grail that they were looking for, was the primal language the language that they believed would have been spoken by angels before the fall from the garden of Eden, you know, in their, in their way of seeing things. Um, And they, they thought that if they found this language, which would be, I don't know, like the assembly language for reality, uh, that they would be able to uh, manipulate reality directly just as God and the angels did. And so this is something that emerged out of uh, the, the D's angelic sessions where the angels gave him this language allegedly that he claimed was the original language that is now called Enochian, which has kind of become the core of the Western magical tradition ever since. And it's a language that at least people who are into this stuff believe, um, you know, can directly <laughs> modify reality, just like it was getting getting straight into the code.
0: I mean, the part that, that, as I read the book, which is, you know, it's a great book, but the, the part about D and Elizabeth, that then sort of rubbed me the wrong way. It's that they take these kind of, you know, timeless magical traditions—these almost, in a beautiful way, purposeless magical traditions—the pure uh, pattern recognition and uh, uh, connection to reality and understanding—and then they, they by merging it with the kind of Judeo-Christian, future-based, progress-oriented, you know, bring on the messianic age structure and marrying it to this kind of patriarchal, uh, even if it's Elizabethan, you know, this kind of patriarchal domination of the planet, that they ended up with a with a hybrid and a kind of a dangerous hybrid, you know, it was no longer, you know, shamans in the jungle seeing the, you know, recognizing the patterns of life and death and day and night and tribe and jungle. It was a, an empire really leveraging all of these insights. They were energized not just by magic but by you know gunpowder and warships and uh, yeah. You know what I mean? It feels like uh, kind of the wrong wrong people got a hold of this stuff, and it didn't make them more loving or connecting. It really just made them want to dominate all the more. (laughs) Yeah. uh,
1: But uh, I'll also say that it's not like those things had been separate before. Magic had come out of the Judeo-Christian context in this sense, or it was a part of the Judeo-Christian stream. But you could also argue that it's another case of it's not necessarily a bad idea, but it's a good idea gone wrong in the sense that, you know, D really wanted what he really wanted was a world of intellectual freedom where people could pursue spiritual enlightenment on scientific lines. They could investigate um, science. You know, science would not have happened without without this work. And it's very likely they wanted in D and the the 200 years after him, what they really wanted was to build a world that was free of the Inquisition and the control of the Catholic Church. And if they hadn't done it, then there probably would have been uh, just a, a Catholic world empire. Uh, and instead, what we ended up with is kind of a cold war between, you know, metamagical systems, if you will, uh, Protestantism and, and Catholicism. And so, but yeah, but then like we fast forward and it's clear that, you know, this is all the process of, of you know imperialism and imperialist thinking, and it's why we've ended up where we are. And also, shockingly, it's not that different from, you know the, the fundamental assumptions are not that different from, for instance, Ronald Reagan believing that he was shepherding the world towards the apocalypse, uh, George Bush Jr. telling Jacques Chirac that he saw Gog and Magog at work in the Middle East, or uh, Mike Pence now, or the assumptions of people like Steve Bannon even where they are still pushing for, you know, this kind of Christian apocalypse, Judeo-Christian apocalypse. Um, and it's that set of assumptions that is behind things. I mean, when you when you understand that, you know, there's a Pew Research study, Pew Forum uh, study in uh, 2006 that found, I think, one out of three Americans believes that it's the end of the world and Christ will return in our lifetime. When you understand that the left-behind books are the most read books in America after the Bible, and I think before Stephen King at this point. You know, it's 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 not like this is ancient history. It's it's uh, a worldview that we're immersed in and that is now kind of enforced at the point of nuclear weapons. You know, even till now, till the invasion of, you know, what we're
0: seeing in Syria now. I mean, the reason why I'm interested in magic and maybe not even in a practical way is just to know it's there is, I mean, the, the, the team human uh, exploration really is about finding uh, evidence and experiences that uh, help, you know, celebrate and separate humanity from the systems in which we live. You know, I, I find if I go to the West coast, I've got to, Every visit, I've got to at least once try to explain why human intelligence is different than machine intelligence, or why we can't upload consciousness to a chip, or why I think that our incarnate experience is not yet fully understood. And magic feels like, at least the the kind of magic that I know, which is really super simple, is just... Looking at the patterns, recognizing patterns in the world around us, which is enough of a rabbit hole for pretty much any person to go into. When you start looking for patterns, you start seeing the patterns. Whether it's Robert Anton Wilson seeing the number twenty-three or the the Sirius star everywhere, you know, in everything he looks at, you you start to see. Oh, there are currents of some kind. Um, I mean, do you see magic as? almost uniquely human? Um, In the sense of patterns,
1: yeah, I think that, well, human beings are confirmation bias machines, right? We'll we'll see patterns anywhere, no matter what, uh, no matter who you are. I mean, all you have to do is look at a wall socket to see a face, right? Or and if you start doing, you know, these rituals and things like that, then yeah, you'll be seeing all these patterns. Like, But the really interesting thing about that is, okay, well, this is obviously just confirmation bias, right? You, you think that you're looking for something, it's a perceptual, it's kind of a perceptual flaw or feature, if perhaps, of human consciousness, where if we look for patterns, we'll see them. So if you look for the number 23, you'll see it everywhere. So somebody who gets into this stuff, who maybe is not very sophisticated about psychology, will think that... Messages are coming to them from the universe. It's like, oh, well, I'm seeing the number 23 everywhere. Therefore, the universe is talking to me directly, and I must be special and made for something greater, right? But then, you know, a a more... Uh, perhaps sophisticated person or somebody who understood cognitive biases would look at this and say, well, this is confirmation bias. You're just seeing patterns because you're looking for them. But then you can then spin that back around. And the conclusion I came to is, yeah, it is confirmation bias, but there's an even more, more interesting part of that, which is, wait, well, if I see what I look for, well, then maybe I should start looking for better things. Right. (laughs) You know, it's like if I start looking for uh, opportunities Mm. to be a more compassionate person, if I start looking for opportunities to, um, you know, help human evolution along or even, you know, the most crass example, if I start looking for opportunities to gain personal wealth, something like that, um, well, then you're going to see them. Well, isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, you will see anything you look for because the universe is essentially uh, infinite information. I mean you can't look around your room that you're in and take everything in all at once. You know, if you change your focus to just looking for blue and then red and then green, you're going to have very different experiences of the room that you're sitting
0: in. Well, right, but sometimes the room itself can change. Mm. It's funny, I was talking to people about um, you know, Facebook and social media lately and how people are getting upset by the reality that their social media is reflecting back to them. Now they're upset that, gosh, the algorithms think I'm like this, you know, this is the news that they're giving me. And what I've been thinking lately is that, well, if you don't like the you that your social media is projecting back to you. What could you do to change its view of you? <laughs> In other words, using using the social media algorithm as a kind of a, a mirror. All right. Because you clicked on this, you clicked on that. So obviously that's the kind of person that thinks you are. It thinks you're violent because you keep clicking on those violent uh, stories. So if you want social media to reflect back to you, a more peaceful person who likes kittens and love and wants to heal the world, then start Clicking on those things and seeing uh, uh, what it what it brings back to you, but I mean what what you're saying is that th- the real world is kind of like this that you know you kind of get out what you put in. Yeah, uh,
1: well you get what you uh, you get what you notice, and and I think that yeah. And by the way, I mean doesn't the, the Facebook algorithm doesn't that make the Robert Anton Wilson concept of the reality tunnel like
0: so useful
1: all of a sudden?
0: <laughs> right. Right, that here is a rea- its a reality tunnel that you're in. Only, it's not solely constructed by your own uh, kind of uh, mental limits or or biases, but by they're being reinforced by a technology that's trying to read your reality tunnel and then, you know, construct a virtual version of it for you.
1: Totally, uh, which is you know quite quite sinister, particularly with the things that happen in the election. And anyone who's ever played with Facebook advertising knows how easy it is to. Uh, or, or used Facebook for marketing knows how easy it is to manipulate perceptions in those ways, but you know the real core of the magical and you know the, the process of becoming you know uh, more magical or shamanic or what, whatever you want to call it, getting more agency over reality, is understanding exactly what you're talking about in terms of having uh, being able to shift between different reality tunnels, being able to shift between different ways of seeing the world, and one thing that I think that I've I've learned in my life. So far, that uh, was very surprising to me is that I think when you meet anyone who's really had a real effect on culture or reality, uh, and I'm sure probably almost all of the people listening to this show, you know anyone who's interested in, you know being part of Team Human or being part of uh, being part of the crew that is helping out on spaceship Earth, well, those people, if you go back probably without fail, have had, you know, either a period of, you know, interest in psychedelics or meditation or some type of spiritual practice. And that might've just been in college. It might've just been in the early twenties, but that experience definitely had an impact on uh, their, their, their future. I think Steve jobs is a great example of that, right. In the sense that he was interested in psychedelics and meeting Eastern gurus and and things like that. And it's been shocking to me uh, how, almost uniform that experience is in people who are kind of a little bit more, um, awake and certainly more utopian. And I think, you know, and also the thing about researching, you know, looking at all these people who either created the British empire or started, you know, naval startups to explore the new world or the space program with Jack Parsons, things like this. It's kind of always been this way. It's, you know, the magicians, if you will, or just the people who are a little bit more plugged in and just more intelligent and curious and creative and, and end up kind of uh, becoming the Illuminati, if you will, in the sense that they're the ones who are uh, helping tell the story of what reality
0: is. What's was interesting. I mean, I would, I would agree with you, but also push back. I mean, I feel like that, yes, among, you know, kind of a, a college-educated white elites... Those who have chosen to you know reflect on what's going on here, how can I make this world better, I mean, most of those people have been kind of shocked into that awareness through a spiritual practice or a guru or psychedelics or deep meditation or something, but the there's a lot of people um, who Come to these sensibilities through what might look to to you know psychedelic ravers like extremely mundane connections to their world. You know the people who are in who are in flow of one kind or another. The you know the the permaculture farmer, the uh, you know the the person cooking bread, baking bread right now. You know they're 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 such insights to be gained through, you know, simple hands on connection to our world that, you know, you don't necessarily need the medicine to get back to it. If that's, if that's where you are, you know, there's a, a I feel like a lot of us think, oh well, you know, they're they're like back in some indigenous state or you know some ancient state, and they need to pass through this sort of industrial age awfulness in order to then you know more consciously seize these these insights. But but they're there, you know. They do seem to have this this sensibility without having uh you know read the books or you know had the, you know. <laughs> They haven't. They don't know. You know Leary and Burroughs. You don't necessarily need it. I'm wondering. I don't know. I, I completely agree, and I think that this is kind of what I
1: what I was touching on when I was saying that I think that magic is a spontaneously emergent principle out of human consciousness. I think that. You know, in a way, you know, like w- when you said, you know, like when privileged white guys get into magic, they they tend to become imperialistic about it and they tend to think they're a big deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm the magus of the aeon and all this stuff.
0: Right. And you think about the that first disinfo conference that we were talking about. I mean, and the magicians were who, you know, <laughs> you know, it was it was Grant Morrison and Genesis Peorich and Robert Anton Wilson and uh, uh, Richard Metzger and Joe Coleman and me. I mean, there were not. There were there were a few women uh, uh, performance artists there, but they were not the ones standing up at the microphone and talking about their kind of macho sigils that they did.
1: Well, that's because they were they're the ones who are really good at magic, so they don't have to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, right, I think that I think that one of my one of the one of the things that I've learned traveling in other cultures uh, is how ubiquitous this is in the world, and I think that. Without, without like over romanticizing other cultures in my interactions with people in for instance India or Thai people or people who are or Mexico you know people who are kind of uh, uh, were, never left magical consciousness or or integrated it into their culture in a way that it, it where whereas Western culture made a clear separation they kind of seem to look at Western people like cats with their whiskers cut off in a way where they they kind of where they kind of look at us like we're kind of missing something, like there's kind of something off about us. And I think what that is is we're not aware. We don't still have that kind of innate uh, magical consciousness that is so much a part of just daily life in so many places in the world. And as a result of that, I think that when people in our culture get into magic, they think they're a big deal. And that they think it's a bigger deal than uh, it really is when I really think the truth is more like, well, we're just kind of as a culture kind of reclaiming something that we lost, but we're really behind a lot of the world in that sense, you know, where, you know, people in, in developed first world nations are very, very ahead in technology, uh, way ahead in, in terms of solving human problems with technology and things like this uh, than than many impoverished places in the world. Uh, but a lot of those places, they have a much deeper and more precise understanding of of spirit than we do. I mean, I think, you know, Tibetan Buddhism is a perfect example, but that's certainly not the only one. There's all these traditions all over the world. And so my progress, I think, just as a human being going through these things has not been about becoming some all-powerful uber magus. That's really an adolescent stage. It's just about becoming more human and trying to reclaim more of my humanity, which I think is what we need right now. I mean, not to be over dramatic about it. I mean it's almost a cliche, but but it's true.
0: Right. But so many of the Western magical traditions really do go back to this become the Uber Magus dude, you know, build this global empire. I mean, if if People like listening to this decide to pursue magic. Are they going to end up finding these angels who tell them to take over the whole world?
1: (laughs) Well, if they do, if they do Western magic, you know. But it's kind of like when I look at magic. So I use magic as a catch-all term to describe all of this stuff. You know, meditation, yoga, psychedelic shamanism, spirituality, all this stuff. um, Just because it's hard to say all that in one breath, and magic sounds really cool uh, because it is cool. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, Western magic is a very small subset of the broader magical world. And it's in many cases been a very broken part of it in the sense that it has all these dominator uh, ideas. It has this like ego pathology that you see people like Crowley running around in it with And Really this book has also been my attempt to kind of patch the Western tradition and put it in proper historical context and understand what it was for. And um, I think that, but the broader answer is, you know, I don't think that Western culture ever stopped doing this uh, and it's just moved on it mo- became science then it became you know high technology things like this and you know I saw um, you just had Kenrick McDowell on a couple episodes ago so Kenrick's right. a friend of mine and actually when I was working on this book he contacted me to work with the ami program at Google and and the question in my mind became, well, we're going into this world where we're building artificial intelligences so forget the whole idea of spirits and gods and things like this or let's just look at spirits and gods as you know our models of what a superhuman intelligence should act like well now that we're going into the world of ai well we need to be very very careful about because we're going to be living in a world of gods and monsters very shortly and uh, real ones you know you know technologically real ones and so we have to be, in my opinion, very, very careful about what assumptions we bring into that. And I think that if we bring in you know, these Western dominator ideals, uh, imperial ideals like we've been talking about, we're just going to be repeating all of the carnage of the Age of Empires on a, an even much, much more dangerous
0: plane. So, Right. We've got way better tech now. Yeah. You know, we can't play a world war at this point without... being a real
1: world war right right and or potentially wiping out all human life uh and i think that you know that's my great fear is that we end up in a world which is purely mechanical with with no need that's optimized out (laughs) the need for biological life uh you know because i think that if you set up an ai to to solve the problem of optimizing
0: itself that's probably the conclusion it would come to right but is that is that is that the committee of angels? I mean, is that what John D's angels would want? I mean, just humans to build this thing to, you know, just program their will and then have no people at all? Or are they nicer than
1: that? Um, I think they're nicer than that. But my but my answer, you know, I think it, confronting the problem of AI is I, I do think that the best model for going into the AI age is not uh, this kind of angelic empire thing. Uh, And in fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book was to make this very clear what's going on here. But I think that, you know, I have to say that I think something like the Buddhist idea of uh, humanity as a network, you know, the whole Buddhist idea is that consciousness is a network between beings and that uh, actually the network connections are much more important and the health of the network as a whole is what's valuable So that, um, and that, you know, that's where the whole Buddhist idea of compassion comes from. The idea of compassion being, you know, compassion for all sentient and perhaps insentient life. And so I think that when we look at these things like these bodhisattvas and multi-armed beings uh, protecting and having compassion and guarding all life, you know, I think that's the set of, of things that we should be. Coding into AI, and we really do only have a short window of, of time in which human beings can still code an ethical system into AIs before they become self-replicating, and, and uh, the evolutionary algorithms take over to the point that they're writing their own code, and we don't really have a say anymore. So we we really do have a window of about ten years to get the right assumptions about how superintelligences should behave into AI. And so this is what I'm trying to, you know, I think that I'm, I'm trying to bring to the conversation with my very kind of bizarre
0: <laughs> specialist background. Right. But it's a tricky moment because, uh, you know, as they just published, I think, in the New York Times, they were explaining how the all the AI scientists are being, you know, scooped up from the universities and put directly to work at <laughs> Google and Facebook. And all of the machine learning they're doing is about Uh, uh, you know, maximizing value extraction. They're not doing machine learning to figure out how to make us, you know, better, more communicative and connected people. They're just looking at how do we maximize short-term profit for a corporation? And that's the whole of it.
1: It's terrifying.
0: It is terrifying because the way that, you know, corporations will make the most money may end up, well, it's interesting. I mean, if you read your marks in the end, In the long term, humans are the only ones that can create value. You know, finally, you still need humans. So maybe the AIs will be smart enough to realize well, without any humans, there's no more value to extract. There's no. Uh, you need someone right. to exploit. Yeah. It's crazy
1: though. I mean, I was just a couple months ago, I was over in Berlin for a blockchain conference and people were bringing these ideas like, you know, not just self-driving, but self-owning cars. And somebody had the idea for like a self-owning uh, uh, forest that would move around on a platform and sell its, sell its carbon credits back for blockchain tokens. It's we're moving into a very, very strange uh, world. But in terms of so, with, so when I really started, you know, when I really went down the AI rabbit hole, and I just got the look of, of frozen horror on my face for about a month, I, I, um, I started reading, I, I realized there was no roadmap at all for where we are. And the only thing that I could come up with was looking at the writing of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. And understanding what their ethical reasoning mm. was. And the terrifying thing that came out of this was that the ethical reasoning of all the scientists working on the bomb is the exact same as the scientists working on AI now. Where they were all in their head, they said, they were all telling themselves, well, this is terrible and it's a terrible weapon. But if we don't create it, somebody else will. The Germans will create it. The Japanese will create it. And that will be even worse. So we have to create it. And, that, and it's like that logic forces it to happen. Right. And where we see now with AI, where we've got like a thousand, you know, companies working on AI, or Putin's working on AI, everybody's working on AI. And yes, it seems that Google has a substantial um, advantage. And that's maybe a good thing in the sense that Google is, is you know, at least somewhere in the, in the foundational DNA there, we have, you know, Burning Man people and Bay Area hippies and things like that. But at the same time, it's almost like the technology becomes inevitable, because it becomes an arms race and that's where we are right now and that's very very frightening so my best hope is that the the right
0: people do it first and they do it with put the right assumptions into it right so i guess in in summary what you're hoping is that by kind of exposing the the long relationship between magic and magical thinking and practice with notions of sort of Empire and apocalypse and and sort of Judeo-Christian progress—you can help almost. uh, I would think almost separate them again, or allow people to to you know touch some of these abilities um, more for their more for their sort of connective capacity than their uh, than their conquering. Yeah, and it's not even
1: it's not even about abilities per se as it is the story. You know what's the story? What's the story that we're telling ourselves? What's the story that we're taking into this? And I can already see people taking the apocalyptic story into AI. I think that um, you know Nick Land and accelerationism is a is a is a good example of that of people bringing this apocalyptic type thinking. You know, really the apocalyptic idea. You know, the core bad idea in Western civilization is that the sooner we cause the apocalypse, the sooner Jesus will come back right and it's like it's an infantile belief it's like it's like the idea of a child you know well if i destroy my room and write on all the on the write on all the walls with crayon um, and just make a total mess then mommy and daddy will come and pay attention to me and they may be punishing me but at least they'll be there and then i will feel existentially safe in the universe that's really all it right. is right
0: better than nothing
1: right and we need if we take that type of thinking into artificial intelligence and bioweapons and nano weapons we're screwed so that's kind of that's um, that's the core meme that we need to be aware of, um, and of course, it's responsible for all the wars we've been in for the last couple of decades. So there's that too. You know, I think that models, not that they're perfect, but I think that models proposed by maybe Buddhism, for instance, and and some of these other some of these other ways of looking at the world, or at least in, worth investigating. You know, are there other assumptions that we can take into life? Can we, you know, see life as essentially fundamentally meaningless, but on which we can impose, you know, certainly the way that I look at at what is reality at this point is there's no meaning to reality. It's, it's fundamentally empty, but that in that, you know, the, the gods and the spirits and the magic and all that is not literally real, but is kind of human projected meaning onto random patterns. But in that, in that understanding coming to the very enchanted, the very magical, viewpoint that well if there's no meaning to life well then it's really up to us to be the gods it's up to us to be compassionate and caring and
0: create the world that is the best for everyone a world that works and even if there is a god you can't imagine god would be too upset that people decide to take care of each other and make the world a better place show a little (laughs) show a little initiative you know (laughs) it wouldn't hurt it wouldn't hurt well, Jason, thanks so much for, uh, for being on Team Human. This is a, uh, a great hour. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the author of John D. and the Empire of Angels, Jason Louv. You can find out more about Jason, his books, and his online classes in magic, technology, and the blockchain at jasonlouv.com. That's jasonlouv.com and magic.me. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at Queen's College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's Stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This is Team Human, our last best hope for Peters.